Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Louisiana is a one-of-a-kind state, so it stands to reason it should have a one-of-a-kind governor. John Bell Edwards is the only Democrat to hold that office in the Deep South, and he's been elected twice in 2015 and 2019. He also advocates a unique mix of policy positions for a member of his party, being a staunch proponent of Medicaid expansion and also signing one of the toughest anti-abortion bills in the country. As he heads into his final year, Louisiana will elect his successor this fall, I wanted to tap Governor Edwards for his reflections on presiding over a red state and the outlook for democracy in the country as a whole. Governor Edwards, thank you so much for being our guest on Times Like These. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure, and it's good to see you again. Thank you again for coming to Louisiana this spring uh, in order to be personally present at something that I thought was very important uh, for our state and maybe even beyond our state. So I, I appreciate your work on the Colfax massacre uh, as opposed to the Colfax riot. Well, thank you so much, Governor. Yeah, I always enjoy coming to Louisiana. And since you started us off on that topic, maybe we'll we'll take up that theme. I mean, we met in Colfax, Louisiana, as part of a ceremony you attended and spoke at, at which uh, a local group dedicated a monument to the victims of one of the worst racial atrocities in U.S. history, the Colfax Massacre of 1873. And you made it a point to be present. And I think it's fair to say that's a theme of the last couple of years of your administration. You have taken some uh, steps to engage in reconciliation or retrospective consideration of some of the things that are not so admirable in Louisiana's past. Maybe you could talk about not only why you thought it was important to come to Colfax, but some of the other gestures you've made. Yeah, well, well, thank you. First of all, I think that history ought to be history, it ought to be factual. And we know that in the, uh, I think it was in the early 1950s, in response to the civil rights movement, which was really just getting started uh, here in Louisiana and elsewhere around South, the folks in, in Grant Parish, uh, Colfax, erected a marker and really what was offensive to me is the state actually put the marker up and continued to own it. But it basically just called it the, the Colfax riot. And it was Easter Sunday of 1873. And it was uh, probably the worst single day of racial uh, unrest and just the number of people that were killed of the entire Reconstruction period. But it was erected and, and I think oh, put there purposely to try to keep African-Americans in their place uh, so that they wouldn't try to demand uh, their civil rights uh, and, and so forth. And it talked about how the incident in 1873 marked the end of carpetbag misrule. I mean, actually use those words. Uh, and I think just as a, as a reminder for you know, the African-Americans to kind of stay in their place, uh, said that there were three uh, whites killed and 150 African-Americans. So it kind of put the score up there. But we knew that that was factually inaccurate uh, and that it wasn't a riot. It was a massacre and it was unjustified. And, and so we really wanted to to take down the state marker and replace it with one that was historically accurate. We involved the history departments at LSU and Southern University and, and had a very brave young lady who worked for me, Mandy Mitchell, who actually took that on as a mission of hers. Uh, and she, she made sure that that happened. And, and uh, I, I just think it was entirely appropriate. 
And I, I remember that day that we had a number of relatives on the, the white side of that conflict who were as interested in, in making sure the history was corrected as were uh, the African-Americans in, in Grant Parish. And so I just think it's important that, that we set the record straight, that we're, that we're historical, and, and that unlike some folks in the country today who try to revise history if it makes them uncomfortable, I think the whole purpose of history requires you to be uncomfortable at, at times. And, and so that was really important. And, and last year in January, the other, and I've done several things that, that were really important to me, but uh, the posthumous pardon of Homer Plessy uh, that we did January the 5th of 2022 in New Orleans on the spot where he bought the train ticket and refused to move to the separate and, by the way, unequal car for uh or African-Americans uh, and caused his arrest and, and gave rise to the Supreme Court case that ultimately uh, upheld uh, separate but equal. But the posthumous pardon for him, the first that we've ever done uh, in Louisiana, uh, that was a very special day for me as well. And again, just trying to set the record straight, he shouldn't have a criminal conviction in the history books. The last, even if it's just a footnote, the last piece of history on that needs to say, uh, that he was pardoned because that really should not have ever been an offense uh, and, and no conviction uh, was warranted. So those are a couple of the things that, that we've done, and I'm happy to talk more about them. Of course, nobody knows more about Colfax than, than you do, and, and, and I can't match your grasp of the history, but I can tell you that as governor, that was a great day for me, as it was January the 5th of 2022. Uh, when I pardoned Homer Plessy, because I just think that those things are really important. They're not just a polite little ceremony where you just go and do something that that's nice or whatever. I really believe that those are meaningful and and lasting changes that that hopefully the African American community, but really more broadly than all Louisianans, uh, will appreciate what the the true history was, uh, the fact that we set the record straight, and then hopefully we can move forward and and do better. So I want to move forward and and talk about current day Louisiana and some of the challenges and decisions you've made as governor. You know, in the introduction, uh, I talk about the fact that not only is it Louisiana a unique state, but you are kind of a unique political animal, a Democrat, the only Democratic governor in the Deep South. And you've taken some steps that probably only a Democratic governor might have taken, including one I think you called your easiest big decision ever, which was to expand Medicaid in the state by executive order. Tell me a little bit, you know, I know it's a huge topic, but as briefly as you can, what the consequences of that have been for the state? Well, thank you. It was the first full day I, that I was governor early in 2016. I signed an executive order. We expanded Medicaid effective July 1st of 2016. Um, and as a result, we went from having one of the nation's highest uninsured rates with respect to health insurance to an uninsured rate below the national average by by expanding healthcare coverage for working poor people. And that's that's who these people are. Because the poorest of the poor already had eligibility for Medicaid. But if you made too much, you didn't have eligibility, but yet it wasn't a condition of your employment and you couldn't afford private insurance. And so these were the people who were kind of left in the gap. And so uh, we knew we wanted to make sure that they had access to primary care physicians and getting their diseases diagnosed earlier, have treatment start, prescription medicine 
but also to have coverage for behavioral health, mental health issues, and addiction disorders. And the Medicaid expansion was a way to do that. And we have about, on average, uh, more than a half million working poor uh, adult Louisianans with health care coverage because of the Medicaid expansion. And we actually saved money as a result of that and were able to uh, address a big part of our structural budget deficit that I inherited was the largest ever at, at more than $2 billion for the first full year that I was governor. But the Medicaid expansion saves you money uh, because if someone's uninsured and goes to the hospital or you pay 40 cents on the dollar for that care through the DISH program, but you can insure them for no more than 10 cents on the dollar. And the hospitals put up the 10 cents by assessing themselves because their bottom line is so much stronger when they deliver less unreimbursed care. And so we didn't even burden the taxpayers with the 10 cents. And so we were able to save a lot of money. And the last two things I'll say is we're the only state in the South when you look around uh, that hasn't had rural hospital closures in the eight years that I've been governor. Uh, and that's because of Medicaid expansion. And then we didn't know in 2016 we were going to have COVID, but COVID preyed on people who had pre-existing comorbid health conditions. So the sicker you were when the pandemic happened, the more likely you were to be seriously uh, ill or or to die from uh, COVID. And and so by expanding Medicaid, when we did, we actually had a healthier population than we otherwise would have. And we have no doubt that we saved lives because of that. And so the Medicaid expansion, and eight years later, there's another gubernatorial election that's taking shape right now. I don't think there's a single major candidate of either party who is even entertaining the notion of doing away with the Medicaid expansion. Well, you, you anticipated my next question because I was interested in the fact that you did this by executive action and not legislation, but it seems that it's here to stay. It is. I, I'm convinced of that. Now, the next governor, at some point within the first six months, he or she will have to do a new executive order or get the legislature to do it. I didn't believe I could get the legislature to do it. Uh, and so I did the executive order. But now that we have a track record and people see the benefits of it, the fact that we're saving money, more people are insured and so forth, I think it would be possible to get the legislature to bless this. But at the bare minimum, another executive order uh, will be signed. I'm, I'm very certain of that. And if the next governor doesn't do that, I can accurately predict today that he or she will be a one-term governor. Well, I, we should just note for the record that your legislature has been controlled by the Republicans for the entire time you've been governor. So now let's compare the degree of difficulty of that action with another one you took last year, which was to sign one of the strictest abortion laws in the country. I think it would surprise a lot of people to know that a Democrat put his John Hancock on a piece of legislation that does not even allow exceptions for rape and incest. Talk to me about the philosophy behind that. I have always been a pro-life Democrat. You don't have a lot of those around the country. It is a pretty good fit here in Louisiana. But I, I think putting this in context is very important. I served eight years in the legislature in the state house of representatives before I became governor. And I was elected in 2007 and took office in 2008. There was actually a, a, a bill passed into law in 2006 that, that was a trigger uh, ban on abortion in Louisiana that was on the books before I ever came in and remained on the books. And so had I not uh, signed that bill and, and have it go into effect, 
the other one would have gone into effect and it actually had less exceptions than the one that I signed because we have a, a, a number of exceptions related to the health of the mother and the condition of the uh, fetus and so forth that were not spelled out in, in the 2006 one. It is true that there's no exception for rape and incest. And by the way, that I believe is unfortunate and I have pushed for those exceptions. But had I, had I successfully vetoed that bill, the default law that would have been uh, put in place when uh, the Supreme Court issued its decision last year and Dobbs was that it too didn't have an exception for rape and incest, but it also had less accommodation for mothers who, who had grave health conditions that needed to be protected uh, by allowing them to terminate the pregnancy. And it, and it also didn't have a number of other exceptions related to the viability of the, the fetus. And so if there's a little bit of, of explanation that, that I think has to go into that, uh, I have been pushing for the legislature to add exceptions for rape and incest. I quite frankly don't think the crime victims ought to be made to carry the baby to term should they believe that's not in their best interest, whether it's their health, whether it's a, a mental or emotional condition or whatever it is. I, I think that decision ought to be left to them. Uh, we were not successful this year in getting the legislature to add that. I do think it's likely to happen at some point because about 75% of the people in Louisiana believe that there ought to be a, a, a rape and incest exception to uh, our, our statutes. And, and, and really, for a long time, uh, it was kind of a theoretical academic sort of discussion because I don't know that anybody really knew if or when the Supreme Court would, would overrule Roe versus Wade. But now that they did, I think you do have more people who are really looking at this issue seriously. And I suspect that there will be, even in a state like Louisiana, uh, an exception for rape and incest created uh, in the near future. So I just have highlighted sort of one from column A and one from column B ideologically, so to speak. What is the unifying theme of the John Bell Edwards ideology? I, I think it's a pretty unusual package um, so maybe you can tell me how it all fits together. Well, I'll do my best because I have always said uh, from the time I was, I was running for the legislature in 2007 that I'm a pro-life Democrat. And, and pro-life is not, to me, just anti-abortion. That's what an awful lot of the pro-life movement is because they don't feel any responsibility for the baby once it's born or, or look at life in other contexts. So for me... Uh, the Medicaid expansion is a pro-life position. Now, one of those on the Medicaid expansion is thought to be a very liberal position. The other one on abortion is thought to be very conservative. But for me, they come from the same place and they, they sort of come forth from my Catholic Christian faith, uh, for example. But I don't like the labels because if somebody just put a label on me, there is no way that it accurately you know, captures who I am and, and what I believe. And so I really, I really don't like those labels at, at all. Uh, but it's more than just abortion and, and Medicaid expansion. You know, I came out this year, asked the legislature to end the death penalty in Louisiana because I believe that that is inconsistent with being a, a pro-life state. And, and there are a number of things that we do related to homelessness initiatives and so forth that, that I believe all uh, deal with life and, and being pro-life. So I, I know that that's not typically the way things are done around the country and certainly not in Washington, D.C. with the federal government. 
but that's sort of who, who I am and, and what I've been since I ran in 2007. Pretty good fit for Louisiana. I still get a lot of people, obviously. Some Democrats really don't like my position on abortion. Some Republicans don't like my position on the Medicaid expansion and so forth. But my positions, I think, have positioned me pretty well for this state. So as we uh, say at the top of the show, it's a little bit about the prospects for a restored political center in the United States. And under that heading, I'd like to ask you whether you think this formula that has not just worked for you uh, in terms of policy from your point of view, but also politically, you've been elected statewide twice. I bet you'd be going for it again if they let you. But does it travel? Could it travel elsewhere in the South? Do you have I mean, we know that only Roy Cooper and Andy Bashir in Kentucky and North Carolina are Democratic statewide officials in the South. Is this a package? Is this a formula that other people ought to be taking up? Yeah, well, well first of all, people have to run on the platform that really reflects who they are, what they believe. But I do believe that, that it, it is possible. Obviously, we've done it in Louisiana to win here in Louisiana and elsewhere with a similar set of beliefs. And quite frankly, it could be someone who's generally thought to be a liberal Republican or somebody who's thought to be a conservative Democrat, uh, but somewhere closer to the political spectrum. I will go further than that, Chuck, and tell you that it would be a good fit for the country as a whole. The challenge is in order to be on the ballot, let's say for president across the country, you've got to go through your party's nominating process. And so people who are in the center of the political spectrum just can't make it through because that's not the party faithful, the base that gets out and vote in the primaries. But should somebody who, who is in the center of the political spectrum uh, be nominated, I'm convinced they start off with a real structural advantage because you have a huge uh, center of, of the political spectrum who, who don't feel that their views are adequately represented by either parties once those those nominees come through that primary process. And, and that's why you typically see Republicans running hardcore conservative uh, for the primaries and then, and then tacking back to the center for the general election. And Democrats do just the opposite, right? But, but if you had a candidate who really was in that position, genuine, I think that they would be well-received by the country. I just don't see a path forward to get through the nominating process and to end up on the general election ballot. So I, I want to turn it just back to the South before we go back nationally. If you look at a state like Georgia, for example, you do have two Democratic senators who made it to Washington. It was kind of a strange year where they elected them both at the same time, essentially. And they did not run on a pro-life platform per se. But does that suggest to you that that was a sort of a one-off or that there are more states in the South where Democrats could be more competitive? And I'm saying this because I think it's really important for the political health of the country that there be competitive two-party systems in more states. We have a lot of trifecta states now, and, you know, it turns into kind of like a one-party situation. Yeah. First of all, uh, Georgia is a very interesting situation. I, I do believe that in Georgia, you've had a, a very significant demographic change. With people moving in from out of, of state, you've got a lot of younger voters, you've got Hispanics, you've got African-Americans. And when you put it all together, I happen to think in Georgia, you, you've got an electorate that is pretty evenly divided. And you ended up with, with a very close election that, that 
elected uh, two United States senators who were Democrats. But I think that uh, President Trump's position and so forth with respect to that electorate really served to boost the candidacies of those two Democrats. But I think it's a really, really close thing. And and, and I think that you're going to see that potentially happen in Texas in the not too distant future. Um, and, and in some other states. We're not quite there in Louisiana and some of the other states. I would tell you, just since we're having a discussion, keep your eye here on the gubernatorial election that's going to take place here this year. Uh, I'm supporting the Democrat, Sean Wilson, uh, African-American, and I really like him uh, and, and believe he can do a wonderful job. But look at Mississippi as well, because I know that you've got a Democrat running for governor of Mississippi uh, whose position on many issues is very similar to mine. Uh, and, and I happen to think he's going to be very competitive and could very well win that state as well. So, so over the next several months, you may see some things play out that'll be very interesting and informative uh, with respect to the points that you just raised. So tapping back into your observation about the difficulty moderate candidates have at the national presidential level, there are, I mean, it's no secret, there are a lot of voters in their respective parties who would rather not see a rematch in 2020 of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. But that's just sort of one indicator, I think, that people have a sense the system's kind of like not working great. It's not working optimally. Of course, we had the horrible event of January 6th and this crossing of the line about recognizing election results that is still in a way unresolved now. When you step back and look at the big picture, Governor, are you are you concerned about the stability of the system, or do you think that basically the resiliency is is going to prevail? Well, it certainly has to this point. But I guess what concerns me most is that now it's pretty clear how all of that unfolded with these unfounded uh, allegations of massive voter fraud that that tipped the election in favor of President Biden and. And stole it away from Donald Trump. I mean, there was just zero evidence for that anywhere. And and we know that that was made up. We know that there was no support for it. Uh, all of those courts, state and federal across the country, ruled against those claims and so forth. We've had January the 6th happen. And yet we still have election deniers out there, people who claim that machines are programmed in order to perpetrate frauds uh, in, in terms of the election outcomes. And, all, and and here we are, you know, in 2023, in the middle of the year, and there's still a lot of Americans. Right now, if you believe the polling, President Trump is, is 30 points or so ahead of his next closest competitor for the Republican uh, nomination. Now, he's not doing very well with independents. He's certainly not doing well with, with Democrats. Uh, so I think it would be very uphill for him to win. But I believe in our country, uh, the system that we have proved to be equal to the task. But at some point, the American people uh, have to kind of shake out of it, too, and say, you know, I, I don't really know how I got carried away and why I believe that in the absence of any factual uh, evidence to support them. But but we can't keep stressing the system. So I am concerned I'm always optimistic by nature, uh, and I believe that we get things right and ultimately we will fix these problems. But I think any informed American who is concerned about our democracy and preserving our country has to be somewhat alarmed by what's happening. And, and it's not anything that, that's happened 
in my lifetime, I'm hopeful we we snap out of it. And by the way, there are there are really good candidates running of not not that I will support, but there are good people people that I know who are running against President Trump, and they are really struggling to gain any traction. Um, and and hopefully that'll change here in the next in the next couple of months because. While I happen to believe Donald Trump is the easiest candidate to be, I'm an American long before I'm a Democrat. And it's not good for our country to have someone like President Trump who might win his party's nomination and be their candidate uh, for president. And that's, that's just not good for our country. You know, one of the things that I've talked about in, in other interviews and with colleagues on this point is that as much as the public will tell you through polls, we're losing confidence in the system. We don't believe in the institutions. We reject the two parties. When you actually talk about what they're going to do about it, quite often the answer is, and therefore I'm running for office, <laughs> which I do think is a is is kind of a positive indicator. Yeah, I, and we want people to be more involved. We really want them to be more informed. Uh, but the problem is too many people are misinformed today. And you've got to make a conscious decision about where are you going to get your information from? Otherwise, you're just going to be fed by misinformation and, and misled and that sort of thing. And uh, so that that really does trouble me uh, that, that so many people, they don't choose a news source to be informed. They want their news source to support what it is they already think they believe. And that that's not serving our country well. I don't know exactly what to do about it, uh, but I do know that we need good people to run for office. And, and by the way, it's never been harder to be an elected public servant probably than it is right now because because of what people will do and say, and especially online and 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 what you subject your family to and, and, and that sort of stuff by serving. But having said all that, we have to have good people who step forward, offer themselves for public service. Otherwise, then, then we're definitely on the road that, that leads us to a, a very, very bad place. So I do think it's good that, that more people are interested in running for office and hopefully they'll have a good thorough debate and, and the American people can decide which direction they want to go in. Well, this brings us full circle uh, in a way to what we started with, which is history and the factuality questions that you've tried to promote as governor. I mean, I, I think we can both see the connection between being honest with people about the deep roots of where a state like Louisiana has its origins and their ability to cope with problems today. I, I think that's exactly right. And look, the people of Louisiana uh, have always inspired me and, and they're, they're good and decent people uh, work hard, very resilient. I mean, we're challenged by hurricanes like nobody's business. And I saw how we responded during COVID and all of that sort of stuff, but there is too much of the national narrative, the, the, the people, the, the model bills that that just sort of dream up some problem that just, you know, by God has to be fixed today. And it's typically on some uh, remote social issue where you, anyway, I, I really don't like those, those kinds of initiatives because they purposely just trying to divide us and distract us from what the true challenges are in states like Louisiana. We still have way more challenges than, than we would like, but we, we have good people here and, and, uh, at the end of the day, I, I do not believe that Louisiana uh, is as extreme uh, in terms of its conservatism than other southern states. Not to say that we're incapable of electing officials at the local level and, and in districts, and for example, to the House and to the Senate. 
but should should they succeed in, in electing someone who is really hardcore extreme right wing? I don't believe the people of Louisiana will be uh, happy with that. And and you can look for a change pretty quickly right after it. I, I think while we're right of center, we're not right of right here in Louisiana. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out here. Well, Governor, my last question for you is what's next? You are term limited uh, as much as you might like to. You can't stay governor past, I guess, next January. What's the next chapter? Have you thought about that? Really, sure. So that's just six months away. My wife and I uh, will go back to our home in northern Tanchville Parish. It's a very rural portion, uh, part of Louisiana, uh, north of Lake Pontchartrain, almost into Mississippi. But that's where we're going to go. I, I, I will practice law and, and look for some other opportunities uh, as well. And, and I think you're right, Chuck. Uh, without a constitution imposing a two-term limit, I would be running again. And, and by the way, I would like my chances where I'm running again. But the Constitution has it right in this regard. Eight years is enough. <laughs> it's, you, you really do, especially when that second term is full of, uh, of a pandemic and hurricanes and so forth. You, you just, you get tired. So I'm going to recharge my batteries. We'll see what happens down the road. I'm not saying never again to, to public service, but that is not my intention. Uh, when I leave, I intend to return to the private sector, uh, go back to practicing law, and hopefully Don and I will uh, we'll be able to, uh, travel, uh, enjoy some grandchildren. Uh, and, and I think we're going to have our first grandchild in January as well. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so we're, we're excited about that. And I know you get to ask the questions, but I, I do want to thank you for your personal interest, your, your work in setting the record straight, uh, in Louisiana, because your book is the authoritative account. Thank you so much for your appreciation of my book. And I have one last question. You are originally from a parish, which like many locations in Louisiana is beautiful, but unpronounceable. I believe it is called Tangipoa Parish, but I just, I just went online. I Googled, how do you pronounce Tangipoa? And there appears to be a controversy. Some people say Tangipoa. And some people say Tangipo. So uh, what's the ruling from the chair? All right. So it's Tangipo. It's Tangipo <laughs> Parish. And, and, uh, and that's just uh, the A at the end. You just, you just leave it alone. It's, it's Tangipo Parish. Uh, that's, a, that's an old Indian name, but it, it was part of the West Florida Republic, by the way. Uh, I'm part of Louisiana that was not in the Louisiana Purchase. Yes. It came into the to this country and to the state uh, a, little, a little later. But it's a wonderful place to be from. A lot of wonderful people uh, there. I wouldn't change when, where, and how I was raised and educated with anybody else in the world. I have been extraordinarily blessed. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm going back to Tashville Parish. All right. Well, thank you very much. Once again, Governor Edwards, it was a real privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Chuck. 